Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Throughout history, the U.S. Senate has generally been a forum where members of opposing parties could work together to transcend ideological and regional differences and to find common ground. In recent years, it's become quite dysfunctional. And in his latest book, Ira Shapiro contends that much of the blame for the decline can be attributed to Mitch McConnell. No Senate leader has ever combined the length of his tenure and the iron grip of his control on his party uh, caucus. Uh, And Ira Shapiro, who served as chief U.S. trade negotiator with Japan and Canada during the Clinton administration, has written extensively about the Senate. The book, The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America is published by Roman and Littlefield and brings Ira Shapiro to our show now. Welcome. Leonard, it's great to be with you. In the past, did the Senate generally have a more collegial and less partisan atmosphere than the House? Well, you know the answer to that, as do as do many of your listeners. And I first wanted to thank you for the chance to be with you. You may not you may or may not recall, but we were together 10 years ago. You were kind enough to interview me when my first Senate book came out. And now there are three. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Um, You know, look, traditionally, the Senate has been more collegial uh, than the House. Uh, No less than Mitch McConnell said that only the Senate, uh, because the parties have to work together, can produce legislation that commands broad national support. Uh, He knows what the Senate is supposed to be. But he's done a great deal to destroy that Senate, to take away the trust and pride and bipartisanship that helped it work. He's not the only factor, uh, which we can discuss, but he is overwhelmingly the key factor. Didn't you work in the Senate for many years for Jacob Javits, Robert Byrd and others, Republicans and Democrats? Was your experience very different from the current climate? Well, yes. I mean, even Uh, during the Newt Gingrich era? Well, now you're getting closer, but I think you're right um, on both counts. The Senate that I worked in, which was the 70s and the 80s, um, was a much different body. Uh, Now, in fairness, the parties were closer together, right? Mm -hmm. There used to be more moderate and liberal Republicans from the Northeast and uh, Midwest, And they were conservative Democrats. So the parties were genuinely together, more together. So it was always going to get more difficult as the parties aligned along regional, racial, ideological lines. But it didn't have to be this way. I think that we lost at a certain point, and Gingrich is actually quite key, which we can discuss, but at a certain point, the senators stopped understanding what their function was. Uh, They became more like partisan hacks, for one thing, and too often acting more like state legislators. They should represent their states, but they're United States senators, and they have a responsibility to serve the national interest as well. 
How relevant is Mitch McConnell's life and background to this story? He was raised in a middle-class home in Louisville, Kentucky, and overcame childhood polio. Yeah, well, (laughs) those are admirable. I mean, that's an admirable thing. And certainly, Senator McConnell would say, and I don't disagree, that his early uh, bout with polio and his success in overcoming it gave him a certain uh, determination that has carried him through life. Uh, but but you would think it would lead him to be more compassionate, conducive to med- medical uh, yeah, one, would, one would think. Um, look, he when McConnell started his political career, his first political consultants were amazed at how unappealing he was. Uh, but they said they acknowledged and were impressed by he, the fact that he would do anything to win. And so he remains unappealing and willing to do anything to win. <clears throat> and over time, he has changed, I believe, from a you know garden variety, moderate, cons- moderately conservative senator who bragged about his civil rights record to a much more conservative Republican. Uh, but I always give him credit, Leonard, in, in the book. He's a superb tactician and strategist, and he has surfed the madness of the Republican Party and stayed in power for nearly 16 years as leader. He is half of one of Washington's leading power couples. Didn't his wife, Elaine Chao, serve as a cabinet secretary for two different Republican presidents? Uh, Yes. Miss Chao, um, Taiwanese-American, but Miss Chao is from an extremely wealthy shipping magnet family. Yes, she she is from she's the daughter of an extremely ship uh, wealthy shipping magnate, but she's had a distinguished career in government and in the private sector. I when I write about Miss Chow, I, I I don't do it extensively, but I always say I think she was one of the most qualified people to go into the Trump administration hmm. without question. She had been Deputy Secretary of Transportation and Secretary of Labor, among all the other things she did. Um, I think her tenure was quite disappointing, uh, even dismal. But the book is essentially about Senator McConnell and the Senate Republicans, and she only is only an incidental reference or two to her. Is Kentucky a traditionally Republican state? Well, Kentucky was traditionally a toss-up state, mm-hmm. uh, very close. You know, there were when I was working in the Senate, the Republic, the sorry, there were two Democratic senators from Re- Kentucky, Wendell Ford and D. Huddleston. One of Huddleston was defeated by McConnell in 1984. It was, you know, basically a border state and kind of 50-50 over time. Kentucky has moved to the red column, uh, like a number of other states, including Missouri and Iowa. Some would say certainly Ohio. Um, it, so it's a conservative state. And and I will say that McConnell won his first Senate race by 5,000 votes, hmm. uh, riding Ronald Reagan's coattails. 
Reagan took the, it was 84, Reagan took Kentucky by 20 points. McConnell eked into office, but he's been there ever since, winning by substantial majorities. Although McConnell is, is fairly conservative, is it fair to say that he's more liberal than Kentucky's junior senator, Rand Paul? Um, I'm hesitating because I haven't thought about the question that way. Hmm. Um, Rand Paul is, you know, almost a libertarian like his father was. He's often on the far end of whatever spectrum he's involved in. He his foreign policy views break sharply with most mostly everybody in terms of isolationism in many respects. But. McConnell's plenty conservative, and I, I would make the argument that he is the epitome of the Republican Party in terms of policy well, on was, everything. Wasn't he known as a pragmatist and a moderate Republican early in his political career? What led to the change? Well, I think what led to the change was uh, the times that began the time the political times became more polarized and he went with it in that sense uh the republican party has moved as you know Leonard, and your audience knows long march from conservatism to i think radicalism nihilism i mean now we have a white nationalist party virtually um, and McConnell has moved with it. Uh, but my main argument about, with McConnell is that he hasn't used his stature and ability to bring people together. Senate leaders are supposed to bring people together. That's their special role. That's what the Senate leaders I grew up with always did. And McConnell has a very different model. He's a divider. He's not, as Bush, George Bush, W. Bush used to say, I'm a, I'm a uniter, not a divider. McConnell's the opposite. In 2006, Harry Reid became majority leader under George W. Bush, and McConnell stepped up to be the minority leader. How did Reid and McConnell work together? Terribly. <laughs> um, I, I have a section, I think, in my second book, and I probably repeated some of it in the third book because you don't have you don't have to worry about plagiarizing yourself. <laughs> um, I think Reed and McConnell had a chance, one would think, to have helped a Senate that was already struggling. Uh, they were both 20 year veterans of the Senate. You would have thought they would have had a commitment to the Senate. But in fact, they were just party leaders. That was what they were doing. They weren't interested in being Senate leaders or working together. And from the beginning, with very rare exceptions, they didn't work together. Uh, there's been a lot written about it by other people, but it was a very unfortunate partnership. But I think I, by and large, have thought about it a lot, and I don't think anyone who's a Democrat can really work with McConnell. Has he ever expressed an ambition to be president, or does he hope that his political power will enable him to accomplish certain goals? 
It's just simply to, a matter of enjoying knowledge, the power? Had, no, no. Part of his strength, that's a good question, Leonard. Part of his strength, I believe, is that he has never mm-hmm. expressed an interest in being president. That his commitment has been to the Senate, being a senator, and most specifically, once he became a senator, he set his sights very early on being Senate leader and possibly the, the ultimate goal was majority leader. If you think about it, it's quite astonishing that somebody, he came to the Senate and it took 22 years before he became minority leader, another eight to be majority leader. I find it ironic that somebody would work so hard to become a leader of the Senate only to damage it so greatly. Many have described McConnell as a man with little political charisma. People make fun of the way he looks, for example, and also uh, somebody with few clear ideological convictions, two qualities that would seem to be essential for political success. So how has he dealt with those perceived shortcomings? Well, I, I have never, to my knowledge, made fun of McConnell's appearance. Yeah, but I was I, looking I for songs to play. No. And, and a number of them are invoke the turtle image. Yeah, I know. But I never do that kind of thing. And frankly, as an older guy who is bald, I, I think he has nice hair. So <laughs> I never go into that. Um, I think he does have some convictions. Uh, I think he would say, and I think it's true, he is a right of center person. Hmm. He opposes Democratic Uh, programs, particularly domestic, all domestic programs, which he regards or says he regards as efforts to socialize America, European, sorry, Europeanize America. He opposes all that. That's why he was fiercely opposed to the Affordable Care Act. He doesn't want to Europeanize America, which I gather means making sure people can get health insurance and other such things. So he does have convictions. The other conviction he has, as he has said with admirable transparency, uh, if you want to have a long-term influence, elections come, elections go, majorities come, majorities go. You want to have a long-term impact? The courts are the way to do it. And that's why he has pushed so hard to move the courts, federal courts to the right, and of course, most dramatically, stacking the Supreme Court with three right-wing justices. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, my guest on today is Leonard Lopez at large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Iris Shapiro, whose latest book is The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America, published by Roman and Littlefield. Um, The subprime mortgage crisis occurred just before the 2008 presidential election. Didn't the House initially reject the bailout plan, which was called the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP? Yes. And and McConnell publicly urged the Senate to pass the legislation. Yes. I, I, I always write about that because it's a wonderful... Uh, example of what McConnell can do in the rare moments he focuses on the interests of the country. 
He played a very useful role uh, when this, he made it clear that it was important to do TARP, even though it was unpopular, that it was necessary to try to prevent the collapse of the financial system. He was very, and he worked with the Democrats and the Republicans to do it. And he was proud of that. But, and, and, he, and he, that influenced the House to follow suit. Yes, that's right. And the House changed that. The 770-point drop in the stock market also influenced mm-hmm. the House to change its position. But the, the thing that's important about this is 90 days later, while we were teetering on the edge of a great depression, second Great Depression, and economic stimulus was desperately needed. McConnell completely opposed anything Barack Obama wanted mm. to do. And the only thing that had changed, besides the fact that the crisis had moved from Wall Street to Main Street, is that we had a Democratic president. Well, it was a shameful performance. Going back, when it was signed into law by President Bush in October 2008, didn't McConnell call Tarp's passage one of the finest moments in the history of the Senate? So it, that it stopped being a fine moment when Obama became president? Although, well, he w- although he Bush say, and Obama set a positive model for the trans- transition from Republican to Democratic leadership. Absolutely. Bush and, and, Bush and Obama had an excellent transition because they knew the country was in crisis and they worked closely to get the, they and their teams worked closely together. But McConnell changed 180 degrees. And the only thing, and look, he wrote a memoir in 2016, which he's very proud of, in which he explains, uh, I brought the Senate Republicans together a few days before the inauguration. It was a cold and rainy day and everyone was in a bleak mood. They weren't in a bleak mood because we were on the edge of a Great Depression. They were in a bleak mood because Obama was coming into the White House and he had high approval ratings. Shameful stuff. Hmm. Shameful stuff. We would still be in a Great Recession if not for, I think it was Olympia Snow, Susan Collins and Arlen Specter who broke with McConnell. So McConnell worked at blocking the government's distribution of TARP funds in January 2009, just three months after he'd voted to authorize them. Well, there's a lot of technicalities here. I don't want to... He didn't block the TARP funds, which went to the financial institutions. He Hmm. blocked the further stimulus, which was needed for the broader economy. Hmm. But... He changed completely just because there was another president of a different party. Isn't a Senate leader expected to work respectfully with the president, regardless of party? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Is this a major change, or or, or have we seen it in the past? We did mention Newt Gingrich. There must have been some others over the course of our history. Senate leaders, and I I worked at the time in the Senate, I had the chance to work with a couple of them and see the last, the third, Mike Mansfield. Mike Mansfield, Robert Byrd, and Howard Baker, great leaders that I believe, 
They they believed it was their responsibility to work with the presidents of their party and of the other party. And you didn't always agree with them. You worked with them where you could. You compromised. You opposed them on some things. You held them accountable, as in what the Senate did with Nixon during Watergate. But what you didn't do and what McConnell did was total obstruction in times of crisis and dripping. You have to read his memoir to see the way he drips disdain for Barack Obama, uh, who was the president still in office when he wrote that memoir. This isn't what Senate leaders ever do. And that's why I refer to him. Well, I, I'll, I'll skip ahead. We'll do that later. <laughs> well, well, what about McConnell's strategy of opposition? Why is it easier to be an obstructionist than to pass major legislation? Oh, well, that's an easy question. First of all, he doesn't believe in most major legislation. You know, let Democrats believe in most major legislation. They want the government to accomplish certain things. So McConnell's philosophy would mean that he opposes a lot of it. But his strategy, Leonard, is that the party in power gets held responsible for the conditions of the country. And if the president isn't succeeding, Democratic president isn't succeeding, that's good for the Republicans. Because it gives them a sense of purpose and unity? Well, no, it well, gives them a sense of purpose and unity and enhances the possibility they'll come back to power. That's what happened in the midterm elections of 2010 and 2014. Obama lost the House in 2010 and he lost the Senate in 2014. Now we're going to see McConnell will pursue basically the same strategy now that Biden's president. He, he likes Biden better than he liked um, Obama. He has said that's that. No question, no question about it, but that really doesn't matter to him. He's just a Democratic president. You've got to stop him. You've got to obstruct him and you've got to defeat him. Well, he did make uh, it clear that he wanted uh, that his goal was to make Barack Obama a one term president. Uh So he he started invoking procedural maneuvers that uh, can be used to block what he considered objectionable legislation? Yes. But here, look, everyone points to that statement he made. Um, And I think it's true. I mean, Howard Baker, a great, great Republican leader, wanted Jimmy Carter, Democrat Jimmy Carter, to be a one-term president. But he worked with him anyway. He, he said Baker's philosophy was, look, there'll be plenty of differences between us and the Democrats. But on some big things, we've got to work together for the country. That's what the Senate's supposed to do. That's what's missing from McConnell in mostly every case. Now, you might say or somebody in the audience might say, isn't he currently supporting uh, the aid to Ukraine? And he seems to be very proud to be supporting the aid to Ukraine and pointing out that Rand Paul and 10 other people are against it. And I think it's great that he's supporting the aid to Ukraine. 
I think if the if President Zelensky and the courage, courageous Ukrainian people remind McConnell of the importance of democracy, I think that's wonderful. But there isn't anyone who's done more to damage our democracy than he has. Well, he supported President Biden's $1.2 trillion infrastructure package, although he's been generally opposed to Biden's social legislation, especially climate change proposals. He, he um, wasn't did. he the only Republican senator to attend the funeral of Biden's son, Beau, in 2015? He was. And that I give him great credit for that, and I'm very critical to the extent I write about it, of the others who didn't go. But look, he did support the infrastructure bill after he sort of gauged how many of the Republicans wanted to support something. And I think it was 19. And he decided being for something is okay. It's always good if you're McConnell. Well, always is too strong a word. It's good it's useful to have a couple of things that you're willing to support so you can say, look, I work with the Democratic president when when he does the right thing. But he has opposed the social legislation. He has opposed, um, opposed voting rights, opposed, always opposes any kind of gun control measures. If you, and during the Obama years, and now he has been the leading opponent to policies that would have helped combat climate change. So people know him mostly for the Supreme Court, but his full agenda is equally bleak. He didn't have the votes, to def as you mentioned earlier, to defeat the Affordable Care Act, which was signed into law in 2010, but he attempted to repeal it in 2017 without holding hearings. Is that right. an example of him trashing norms? Well, that's you're, you're raising a great point. One of my criticisms of McConnell is that he goes, besides the fact that he behaves not like a Senate leader, he goes far beyond what a Senate conservative would do, goes far beyond policy differences to trash norms and customs that make the place work. If he was opposed to the Affordable Care Act, that's one thing. But to come back eight years later and try to repeal it without hearings, without mark committee markups, without consulting with any of the interest groups that were, and they were numerous. But he had a, he had a Republican president in the White House at the time. Yes, he did. And he did. And, but he what he should have, yeah. and by the way, I always point out, Trump had a certain agenda, but Trump didn't even run against abolishing the Affordable Care Act. That was something that McConnell and Paul Ryan sold him. That was congressional stuff. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I've been in many cities on my travels round the earth To spend some of my surplus wealth I've tried for all I'm worth You think would cost a lot to live a year in Gay Perry I've spent more money in a week in Washington, D.C. In Washington, 
in Washington. Where the limit's as high as the Capitol Dome, and the best thing in the city is the train for home from Washington. Dear Washington. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Irish Shapiro. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org, and the phone number again, 212 212- 209-2950. If you do, we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book, but don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Thopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Ira Shapiro, whose latest book, uh, a follow-up to previous books on the Senate, one, Broken, Can the Senate Save Itself and the Country, and the other one, The Last Great Senate, this new one, The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America, published by Roman and Littlefield. Um, now, uh, isn't Mitch McConnell one of the few politicians who argues for more money in politics? What's his argument for that? He, um, he's done a lot of harm to the campaign, what used to be the campaign finance system. He would argue when he first got elected, he would argue that the only way to get elected and for somebody to, to try to get to office is if they have an ability to raise as much money as possible. He would say that at the early years, he used to say, we don't need campaign finance limits as long as people disclose their contributions. Well, the disclosures seem to fall out pretty early from his plan. And... We entered a period, and by the way, the Supreme Court, the Roberts Court, with the Citizens United case, made it clear that wealthy individuals could give unlimited amounts of money. Corporations could give unlimited amounts of money. Um, so, And McConnell called that a terrific decision. No, of course. And McConnell, I'm often asked, and you, you got to some of this, when you asked, talked about his lack of appeal, et cetera, I'm often asked, what, what's, what, how, how does he stay in power? And one of the ways he stays in power is his Senate, his Senate colleagues respect him because he got them chairmanships at one point and because he understands the donor base of the party. He has raised a great deal of money. He knows who gave the money. He knows what they're looking for. It's not all the fossil fuel industry and the National Rifles Association, but that's two of the biggest parts. But but not everybody in his party agrees with him. Didn't he have a longstanding argument with Senator John McCain, who was pushing for donation limits? And yeah, yeah. Republican yeah, President yeah. George W. Bush signed campaign finance reform into law. I assume that was a disappointment for not only for McConnell, but also for billionaire conservatives like David and Charles Koch, who donated generous amounts of money to McConnell to fight restraints on campaign spending. Oh, no. Originally, there were 
I mean, there were plenty of people on the side of John McCain and Russ Feingold and their long effort to regulate campaign finance. It went in Congress. It went up to the Supreme Court, et cetera. Why did they want it? Did they think the Democrats actually had an advantage in that regard? Well, I'm not sure what they thought at that point. I mean, it. I would only say that the only good thing I can say about the current campaign finance lack of system is, number one, both parties have a small donor base as well as big money. And I think that's healthy. If you had told me some years ago that Bernie Sanders could raise $27 million from like a million people at $27 each, I wouldn't have believed it. And both parties are quite good at small donors. And both parties have a lot of big donors. So the only good thing that I would say is that those two things, which ensure that in most campaigns, there'll be too much money, but there'll be too much on each side. Was the passage of the $2.1 trillion tax cut targeted for businesses and, and the wealthiest individuals his major legislative achievement, do you think? Because it, it passed the Senate on a strictly party-line vote. Yeah. No, that was, look, <clears throat> McConnell had had some embarrassment when, uh, as you said, he tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And he came close, but he didn't succeed. And as I put that point out in the book, therefore, it was time to turn to a major legislative accomplishment that would unite all Republicans. And that was a tax cut for the wealthy and for business. Reagan had one. George W. Bush had one. And McConnell and was determined to help Trump get one. And he succeeded. Now, you mentioned earlier the, the, what happened with the Supreme Court. McConnell announced just an hour after Justice Antonin Scalia's death became public that the Senate would not confirm a replacement until after the 2016 presidential election. Was there any precedent for the Senate's refusal to consider a Supreme Court nominee in an election year? There was no precedent for what he did. There were any number of cases, and particularly including Anthony Kennedy in 1988, where the Senate had considered um, Supreme Court nominees in an election year. It was an exercise of raw power. Was and it based initially, on the, the assumption that Donald Trump would lose the 2020 election. Well, I, it's interesting. I think generally it's believed that McConnell did not expect Trump to win. But, you know, he wanted to hold open the seat just in case. And he liked to make trouble for Obama on everything. Well, Merrick Garland was a highly qualified judge. uh, And yet McConnell was able to stonewall his nomination. And didn't McConnell say that, quote, blocking a vote on Garland was the single most consequential thing I've done in my time as majority leader? Yes, he did. And it was, actually. That was the most consequential thing he did. Well, Later still, on, however— They still would have gotten a lot of Republican, uh, you know, conservatives into the court. They just would add one fewer. 
Well, but look, that was a key. There would have been a five to four not conservative court if Garland had been con- uh, confirmed. Um, that was key. And McConnell said, most important thing I've done until he said the same thing uh, when he rammed through the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett eight days before an election in a process that looked more like a banana republic than anything else. And went against everything he claimed about the, the Merrick Garland nomination. Yes, it went against everything he had claimed. Those words were un- inoperative at that point. But it was actually worse than Garland, I think, Leonard, because I didn't like I mean, Garland was unprecedented, his action there. But at least the next president was going to choose to nominate a Supreme Court justice. In the Barrett case, he took that decision away from the voters completely, just rammed it through, even though Trump was likely to lose and and was carrying on an assault on our democracy at the same time. Well, didn't McConnell systematically block many of Obama's federal court nominations, uh, creating a record number of judicial vacancies? And then he advised Trump to fill the federal judgeships quickly, even at the expense of other priorities, such as confirming cabinet nominees. Yes, to all of those. And that does focus on that does highlight his focus and his determination to get things done. And he and that issue, uh, Trump, who had no real background in it, Trump recognized uh, the value of that advice. And, you know, you recall, Trump wasn't very popular with uh, sort of the Christian right part of the party and the legal right or the constitutionalists, as they like to call themselves. That's why Trump, during the campaign, said, essentially put out a list of possible Supreme Court justices that he would nominate, a list that was handed to him by the Federalist Society, the Heritage Foundation and McConnell. What's McConnell's working relationship with Chuck Schumer, who became the minority leader under Trump and is now the Senate majority leader? Well, it's not good. Um, Schumer is a realist, which means, you know, to the extent he can, if there are areas he can work with McConnell, he will do it. McConnell is the Republican leader. But... There's no love lost between them. Um, Schumer would very much like and, and, and also they kind of lead the campaign, the Democratic campaign committee, the Republican campaign committee. I mean, they're at swords point all the time. What reasons did Schumer give for opposing Trump's nomination of Elaine Chao to be secretary of transportation? She, she won the confirmation easily, even without Schumer's vote. Yeah, I don't know. I was surprised by that. I thought it was a bad move. To, bad move. As I said, On whose part? Ms. As I said, Miss Chow was very qualified. Uh, and I don't get why Schumer did it. Maybe, maybe it, it might. Well, maybe I do get it. It was a period of intense 
the resistance to Trump started right away. And I think Schumer was demonstrating just how just how strong and tough a leader he was. But I wouldn't have done that. My guest on today's Leonard Lopit at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Ira Shapiro, whose latest book is The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America. It's published by Roman and Littlefield. The, the 2020 election was held at a time when Americans were asked not to leave their homes because of COVID. Didn't McConnell take the lead in making mail-in voting more difficult nonetheless? Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, look, we haven't, when I talk about the betrayal, I'm talking, I was moved to write this book because of anger about the events during the crisis year of 2020. We had a once in a century pandemic, uh, a racial reckoning after the murder of George Floyd. And we had an unhinged president with respect to the pandemic, let's say. I won't talk about the other things, but an unhinged president who was inviting supporters to super spreader events, telling people they should inject uh, various forms of bleach and disinfectants, mocking, masking and social distancing. And making it clear that he wasn't going to accept the results of an election that he lost. So if that's the case, who has the responsibility of doing something about that? My argument is that the people who have the responsibility and the stature to help steer our country through that crisis was the Senate. That's their responsibility. And they failed it completely. They didn't write, with the exception of the CARES Act, let's say the initial response. Well, the, the, but, the, the CARES yeah. Act was a $2, million, $2 trillion uh, act, yes. which included $400 million for elections. But Senate Republicans refused to release the money to help states count ballots or to aid the U.S. Postal Service. Because no, absolutely. They were trying to skew the election that way? Well, of course. I mean, it's sort of you know, win at any cost. And it was an outrageous act. It was not not a patriotic act. But besides that, the only thing that roused them from their torpor in 2020 was when uh, they had the chance to fill another Supreme Court seat. I have written, and I believe, that the only death that really mattered to McConnell was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's. He didn't concede the 2020 presidential election results until mid-December. What were some of the consequences of that delay? I think the consequences were far-reaching and potentially almost irreversible. You know, if McConnell... And Lindsey Graham, particularly, and the others had said after the networks proclaimed Joe Biden to have won the election. Well, it was a tough fought election. I'm sorry it came out this way. We'll be back in four years. But Biden's the president elect. I don't believe that 50 million Americans, 70 percent of Donald Trump's voters 
would have thought that the election was stolen. But because McConnell and the others did not contradict Trump, uh, big lie took hold. And that's a shame, another shameful act. In this area, my firm view is that McConnell misjudged the situation completely. He underestimated Trump's depravity, number one. And I think he overestimated his ability to control the situation. Well, he thought he... the election would be over when he said it was over. Hasn't he flip-flopped on these things? For example, uh, he initially condemned Trump's actions on January 6th using strong language. And yes. then he voted to acquit Trump at the second impeachment trial. Yes. Well, he had you can't find better speeches about what Trump did and Trump's role in the insurrection. First, first, the big lie, January 6th, he's describing it and that the election wasn't stolen and fraudulent. And February 13th at the impeachment trial, a con condemnation of Trump for inciting the insurrection. Very strong speech. And then he finds a reason to vote against convicting him. And also, Shameful he, stuff. He, he's uh, opposed the Independent January 6th Commission. Now, yes. that, that's despite the fact that McConnell, d despite the fact that McConnell did a great deal to further Trump's agenda. He quashed potentially embarrassing investigations, ensured both impeachment trials failed, and yet Trump dislikes him a lot. Trump has called him a dour, sullen, unsmiling political hack. Well, Trump, it's a great, it's, 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 a, it's a really fascinating thing. McConnell has done a lot for Trump, saved him repeatedly, did did not, did not cause the Senate not to convict him in two impeachment trials. But Trump will never forgive McConnell for condemning his behavior so sharply. I mean, McConnell really blasted Trump. I think McConnell was actually outraged. You know, McConnell spent 35 years of his life in the Capitol. He took, I think he was outraged by the insurrection and Trump's role in inciting it. Uh, and he said so. But then he changed his view uh, enough to exonerate Trump. And he has said he will support Trump if Trump's the nominee. You argue that the recent Senate hasn't just failed, but has betrayed their oath of office. Would the Republican senators you worked with in the past have been able to stop Trump? Or would they have wanted to? I mean, oh, Jacob Javits today oh. might be considered a Democrat. No, no, but I, look, I'm, I, I can say with a good deal of certainty that the senators I knew, Republican senators like Jacob Javits, Chuck Percy, Mac Mathias, Lowell Weicker, Howard Baker, any number of these people would have stopped Trump. They would have convicted Trump. They would have stopped. The, if McConnell had been the leader and wanted to do what he's doing, they would have broken with McConnell. You know, it, it, to me, as you know from the book, um, 
I point out that while I hold McConnell responsible for a lot of things, he couldn't have succeeded unless he kept his troops. I don't know what Rob Portman of Ohio and Lamar Alexander of Tennessee and Roy Blunt of Missouri were thinking, but they were worthless. They were worthless. They abandoned America. And I think, you know, they have to live with that, but we have to live with the consequences. You mentioned McConnell's memoir, The Long Game. Uh, how much insight did it provide you uh, into his approach to politics and, uh, and in writing this book? Well, I think his memoir is very revealing um, about his approach to politics. And it's also revealing about what an utter hypocrite he is in many respects. The early pages of the memoir uh, show real understanding of what the Senate is and how it has to work. And then he says, as I recall the words, he says, a Senate leader, he talks about, no one, the Senate is not an all or nothing place. And anyone who doesn't understand that shouldn't be a leader in the Senate or in anything else or of anything else. And yet he made it an all or nothing place quite quickly, uh, both when Obama was president and then when Trump was president. He went from being a partisan obstructionist to being an utter battering ram, mm. trashing norms on the way. So. I, yeah, I don't, here's my bottom line. Legislating and governing a country as diverse and contentious as ours is always going to be difficult. Well, the Congress has endured periods of of paralysis, corruption, and violence in the past and then recovered. So um, should I assume that uh, there will be a way out of this polarized morass that's engulfing it now? Well, I think that we, no, I think we, I think our democracy is hanging by a thread. I think that I've tried various models for figuring out how to get out of this and including sort of urging moderate Republican senators to show more independence, Hmm. which they sometimes do, but not enough. I think that the book ends with a party. Sorry? A, a couple of them have been drummed out of the party as a result. Right. The book ends with a call to action. If you want to change the course of our politics this time, this year, the best thing you can do is defeat Republican candidates for the Senate. Elect Democrats. Diminish McConnell's power. We've been living in Mitch McConnell's America far too long. It's time I, I have, to escape. I have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. That was my end line anyway. Ira Shapiro, his latest book, The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America from Roman and Littlefield. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, thanks for having me. We'll be back together in another 10 years. <laughs>
And that brings us to the end of our show. Let's hope that I'm still on the air in 10 years. My great thanks to Deborah Freeman for helping prepare today's interview. If you just discovered this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you would like to write to me, my email address this is Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 right now or by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's 212-209-2950, or give, and then the number 2, WBAI.org. We need your help to continue to bring you this unique, in-depth content, uh, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America by Ira Shapiro. So why not make that call, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because This station relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to this show, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do? Again, the number 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. And help keep this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored and live and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but we hope you can join us on Wednesday when my guest will be John Bainbridge Jr. discussing his new book, Gun Barons. We'll see you then.